Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode 302, JIT. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In this week's follow-up episode, we're going to cover a variety of topics. We got a lot of messages about the keys, some of the suspects, and even some things we haven't really thought about before. We've got a lot of material to get through, so let's get started with this week's Friday follow-up. Okay, Bob, before we get started here, I have a quick question from listener Lynn Jacobson Roars, who wrote into us on Facebook. Lynn was trying to find the case documents on the website and ended up on SerialDynasty.com instead of TruthAndJusticePod.com. So could you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find the documents? Sure. This was an unexpected complication with redoing our website. So a lot of you may not know this, but when you Google something, Google is driven by the amount of traffic certain websites get. Our original website was SerialDynasty.com. When we rebranded about a year and a half ago and became Truth and Justice, I created the TruthAndJusticePod.com domain, but for the last year and a half, that's only forwarded back to the Serial Dynasty website where we built the content. So this is what's happened. Listeners are wanting to check out the case documents from the episodes, so they're Googling Truth and Justice. And even though SerialDynasty.com is not our current website, that's where it's taking you because that's the website that's had the most traffic. Chris Brinkley, our web guy from sylviaconsultants.com, is currently working on forwarding SerialDynasty.com over to the new domain, but it's a little tricky because he's still pulling the content off of that website onto the new one. So, all that being said, to review all the case documents for Season 3, our website, and the website you should go to from now on, is truthandjusticepod.com. That's also where you'll find links to our Patreon page if you want to pledge a monthly donation, or if you want to go to our shop and buy t-shirts, sweatshirts. We even have coffee mugs coming on the merch site that should be available maybe by the time you hear this episode. So again, the website you go to for all things Truth and Justice related is truthandjusticepod.com. And also, before we get started into the content, we're still doing a little bit of housekeeping here, we are adding a feature to these Friday follow-ups. 
So since we do the call-ins at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, people on the East Coast tend to be at work around that time, people on the West Coast are just waking up, and people in Australia are in a completely different day. So because there's no way to get a time that works perfectly for everyone, we're now also adding the ability for you to call in and leave a voicemail for the follow-up episodes. So the phone number is still the same, and it's on our website, but it's 269-224-2833. So after the episodes drop on Sunday, you'll have from Sunday morning until Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, when we open the phone lines up live, to leave a voicemail with your question. If and when you do that, make sure to try to keep it brief, make sure you state whatever name you want read on the show, and where you're from. And keep in mind, we're going to play it directly and it won't be edited. So if you leave your question and you feel like you mumbled your words, it's no big deal. Just call back again and leave it again. So there's no pressure to get it right the first time. So if you can't call in on Wednesday mornings, you can leave us a voicemail before 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesdays. And that's all I've got for housekeeping, Mike. Okay, Bob, we'll get right into our social media. Let's start with an email from Bianca Carter. Many people, including yourselves, feel that the return of the keys in the mailbox was possibly a sign of remorse. I don't disagree that it is a possibility, but when you mentioned that it was a gang initiation killing and that there were probably witnesses that have still not come forward, it got me thinking. Maybe the return of the keys had nothing to do with the remorse and everything to do with intimidation. If it is intimidation, it says, we know who you are, we know where you live, so keep your head down and your mouth shut and it may not have even been directed at Kiev's family as much as the neighbors, i.e. potential witnesses. A local gang and its members are probably known to the people in the area, and keeping those who know them silent is essential, and I would think that news of the keys would have gone around the rumor mill pretty fast. Placing the keys back in the mailbox can be seen in this light as a warning. Leaving potential evidence may not have even occurred to them. Even smart, savvy career criminals make potential mistakes. Just a thought. Thanks and keep up the good fight. All right. Thanks, Bianca, for that email. And it's an interesting thought and something that hadn't really occurred to me before. The idea that the keys could have been placed back in the mailbox for intimidation certainly is a possibility. And keep in mind also, when I said a possible gang initiation, that's just a possible hypothesis that's run through my head. And we are way too early into the investigation to even start formulating theories. But that's just something that crossed my mind. And regarding the idea that a gang member would put the keys back into the mailbox as intimidation, I honestly can't speak intelligently about that right now because one of the things that's on my docket is to do some research on gang behavior and gang activity in the Pleasant Grove area in the early 90s. I just haven't educated myself enough on that yet to formulate a really good opinion. But it's a great thought and something we'll definitely put a pin in for the future. All right, and we've got another email here regarding the keys from listener Katie. Katie writes, I think it's more than possible she put her own keys in her own mailbox and went for her walk and it's just by chance they didn't notice for a week. If you have one of those letter-sized boxes, if mail accumulates before you're dealing with a murder, you may only later notice the key scraping noise when retrieving that pile of mail. I think that's more likely. I only know because my mother accidentally forgot she had done this with the keys, and until we had a substantial amount of mail did we notice. Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Katie, for that email. And this is something that I thought was most likely the case right from the very beginning. It just seemed completely out of the question to me that someone would stick the keys back in the mailbox. I thought the most likely scenario was that Keo had left him there. But given all the evidence we have now, I just don't think that's possible. When you listen to this today, I'll have up on the website a modern-day photograph of Keo's house showing the mailbox that's exactly as Kenneth described it in the trial transcripts. 
Now, they now have a new mailbox out by the curb, but the original mailbox is still right up next to the house. So if you want to see a photo of that, go to the website and check that out. But here's a couple of things that lead me to believe that it's just really, really unlikely for Kiao to have left those keys in there herself. First of all, Kiao reads to me as being someone who is somewhat compulsive. She keeps a very strict routine. She does the same thing every day. And this is based on people from the neighborhood, her husband. If you piece everyone's testimony together, Kiao was quite a creature of habit. So her routine was to work out in the morning and then go for a walk. And when she went for a walk, she had a collection of white handkerchiefs that she would wrap the keys in. And Kenneth didn't say that she would take a walk and carry her keys. He specifically said that she would wrap them in the white handkerchief and carry them in her right hand and go for a walk every single day. So first of all, the idea that she would just break that routine and one day decide, hey, I'll put them in the mailbox seems unlikely, but not impossible. But Kenneth also testified about the white handkerchiefs. He says that she had several of them because she would only use them once before she would wash them. And the way that I read his trial testimony was that one of the handkerchiefs was actually missing. And lastly, we get into the actual mailbox. This mailbox, if you can imagine, is one that is wide and shallow, a metal mailbox that would attach to your wall. So it's about the size of a standard letter. A large, say, 8x10 or 9x12 envelope would stick way out of it. Well, I used to have a mailbox that was exactly like this in my first house. And I remember every day checking the mail, and every day I would stick my hand inside and swipe it all over the place because letters would get stuck to the sides and I'd miss them. Presuming that every day they were making sure there wasn't something lost in the bottom of the mailbox, I find it extremely unlikely that they wouldn't notice a big bundle of keys in the bottom of the box. Also keep in mind that this mailbox is so small, the keys at the bottom of it would definitely make the mail stick up funny and you would notice immediately that there was something in there. When we factor all of these things in together, we still can't rule out that it's a possibility, but in my personal opinion, it's extremely unlikely that Kia was the one that put those keys in the box. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and this Facebook post is sort of along those lines. Jennifer Drew Weintraub asks, when they talk about the keys being returned to the mailbox, it instantly made me think her husband was a suspect when I first listened. So I don't know if anybody else might think that. Like maybe he did return the keys to the mailbox to throw them off his scent. When I first started looking at this case, to be honest, the first thing I thought of was Kenneth, Kiao's husband. At a glance, the crime seemed personal, and then there was this key thing. It just seems so unlikely that somebody would return the keys, and much more likely that Kenneth had the keys and just made up the story. But as I've looked deeper and deeper into the case, and deeper and deeper into Kenneth himself and his relationship with Kiao, 
I personally think that there is zero chance that Kenneth had anything to do with this. Now, again, as I stated earlier, we're still way early into the investigation, and we're definitely not at a point of ruling anybody out or narrowing down on any suspects. But so far, everything that I've read about Kenneth seems to me that he was genuinely devastated by the loss of his wife. Looking at some of that evidence, let's start with the keys. When he finds the keys, he calls the detective. He wants the detective to come out and pick them up. Royster decides not to. And even after Royster told them that they weren't important, he still stored them on a shelf for three years. He didn't touch them in case there was biological evidence contained on them. And then furthermore, once Jesse Eldridge was arrested and was about to be tried, Kenneth actually took the keys and mailed them certified mail to the prosecutor. His thoughts were that now that they had an actual suspect, maybe they could test the keys against Jesse. And that's something that, again, never happened. But looking further into Kenneth, we have no record of there being any kind of life insurance. We know by the time of the trial, which was five years later, he hadn't remarried. He was still living in the same home. Throughout the course of the investigation, he put up a $10,000 reward to anybody who could find the killer, and he even went as far as to hire a psychic to try to figure out who killed his wife. Kiao's friend Constance says that they had a good relationship, Kiao was happy with her life, and keep in mind, this is a couple that seems to do everything together. To be honest, when I'm reading about Kenneth and Kiao's relationship, it reminds me a lot of the relationship that I have with my wife Becky. Just like them, we do most things together. We exercise together, we go out together, even right down to exercising together. Imagine a relationship where every single day, when the husband gets home from work, he and his wife go out and go for a walk together every day. Add to that, we have no signs, no evidence, or no reports that Kenneth was with somebody else. And at trial, he even testified that he will never remarry because as far as he's concerned, Kiao will always be his wife. So personally, I think that there is something nefarious going on with these keys, but I don't think it has anything to do with Kenneth. Okay, and also pertaining to the keys, Jeffrey Baker on Twitter asks, could the killer have seen the Gove's address in the paper and then returned the keys? Thus, they didn't know the family. I think that that actually is possible. However, I don't think they could have directly gotten the key I was addressed from the paper. A listener of the show named, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Fatima Rivera, sent an email in this week with links to several articles about the case. And I'll be getting these articles pushed out soon onto the website. While the articles do state Kiao's name, they don't give the address. But remember, this was back in 1991, when phone books still existed. So I do think it's possible that someone read in the paper that it was Kiao Gove who was killed and got out the phone book and found the address and then returned the keys. So that definitely is a possibility. All right, Bob, and moving away from the keys and out of this email from listener John regarding the stab wounds found on Kiao's body. From having so many cuts and very different angles, it really hit me like it's a gang initiation or gang killing with multiple people involved, some tall, some short, etc., as opposed to one person suddenly changing angles and positions. That's a lot of cuts and angles to make in such a quick succession. Okay, thanks, John. I'll agree with you that it does seem extremely unlikely that one person could inflict 13 stab wounds and four cuts in what had to have been a very short period of time. However, as we really start to break down all the wounds, which we're going to be doing next week on episode 304, we're going to go through injury by injury, point by point, I think you'll start to see how it's possible for one person to have committed this murder alone. Now that doesn't mean that it was one person, but I think that it is in fact possible. 
And we even have an expert that you'll be hearing from very soon that's going to talk about exactly this topic. So make sure you stay tuned to the main episodes. Also, regarding Kevin Marco's testimony, listener John Hayes, who we'll hear more from in the call segment, posts on Facebook, Strange, if the opening for the fence was real close, why did the paramedics decide to lift her over the fence instead? This is actually a really good question, and it's something that I've wondered about. From all the reports we've received, Kiao's body was in fact found just inside the fence, right near an opening. And that, just like you, John, was the first thing that struck me, was why would they pick her body up over the fence when they could have just walked through it? And the only explanation I have for that is this. I spent, as you all know, 16 years as a firefighter. In my 10 years as a fireman, I've been to a lot of grisly scenes with a lot of injuries. And those scenes tend to be chaos. You have police, fire, and EMS all rolling up on the scene all at the same time. So when that happens, two problems present themselves. One is parking. When you have police cars, fire trucks, and ambulances all in the same scene, nobody seems to ever end up where they should end up because some other emergency vehicle is in the way. Now in this case, the ambulance was the first vehicle on scene, but it's possible they stopped Keo's body and stopped the truck short of the opening in the fence. And remember, with an ambulance, you load the patient in from the back. And in Keo's case, this was what we call a load-and-go scenario. When they initially assessed her, the paramedics determined that there was at least a possibility of reviving her. So they immediately wanted her into the back of that ambulance as quickly as possible. And this leads to the other issue that happens on these scenes, and that's that there's a lot of people all over the place. Which in this case, I'm going to assume probably led to Kiao's body being passed over the fence rather than going through the gate. My guess is what happened is, the two medics that were out there with her body loaded her onto a backboard, and two other people, be it firefighters, medics, or cops, were standing on the other side of the fence directly between them and the ambulance and simply hollered, bring her here and we'll put her in. And they probably ran to the fence, passed the stretcher over, and they put her in the ambulance. As opposed to walking 20 feet north, going through the opening, and then walking 40 feet back south to get to the back of the ambulance. Unfortunately, I don't know that we're ever going to know the answer to that question for certain, but I think that's probably the most likely scenario. Also on Facebook, Daniel Rohr asks, Do we know what Silvestri Vargas did? We know his supervisor's name, but what type of work or where was he working? No, unfortunately we don't. It was never noted in the report. However, it is something that I'm going to be continuing to investigate. Also, listener Katina Carter sent us a voicemail, but she thought it sounded kind of silly. So she wanted us to just go ahead and read her question from Facebook. Is the psychic that did Ken this session still alive? Also, do you think Kirby would be willing to take something to a psychic now? The answer to both of those questions is still I don't know at this point. I haven't really looked into the psychic yet, but that's a good thought, so I'll check into it. And regarding Kirby, I just don't know. I have spoken to Kirby, and like I mentioned previously, he did seem to be okay with what we're doing. He was very nice to me, but he also told me that he actually doesn't have anything of his mother's. I'd asked Kirby for a photo of Keo so I can put it up on the website, and he said that he didn't have any photos of her, and that all of the albums that did exist with photos of her, as he put it, quote, my dad took them to the grave, and I haven't been able to get in touch with Kirby since that conversation. So honestly, I think that I really caught him off guard by calling him, and it seems like he's really not all that excited about getting involved with what we're doing here, which is completely understandable. So my guess would be, no, that's probably a no-go as far as having Kirby give something of his mother's to a psychic. But good thought. Okay, we've got one more tweet, and then we'll get right into the calls. Ron Evans tweets two questions. Will we be looking at victimology soon? And did Kirby have any emotional, drug-related, or violent history? 
Okay, to the first question and victimology, we're kind of doing our best with victimology. In episode 301, we covered as much of Kiao's past that we know about, and in 302, we got into the rest of the information that we know about her. The stuff that I just talked about a few minutes ago, that she seemed to have a good relationship with her husband, we don't know of anybody she had a problem with, we do know that she's told her husband that there was a car that was following her one morning, and as far as we know, there were no extramarital affairs, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing like that. I am trying to get in touch with some people that did know Kiao back then, but as of right now, that's pretty much everything that we have for victimology. And regarding Kirby, as far as I know, there is no history of any kind of criminal activity, no violence, no drugs, no alcohol, that I'm aware of at this point. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's social media. Thank you everyone for sending in your questions and thoughts. Now we'll take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors and move right into this week's calls. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, I am on the air with John, and John is actually calling from Tyler, Texas. How you doing today, John? Doing pretty good. How are you doing? Doing really well. How's things in Tyler? It's a sunny day down here, so it's, it's good. I'm just on my way to a uh, work training. Oh, nice. Yeah, sounds like you're driving. All right, so since you're on your way to work, let's let's go ahead and get your question. Mike said you had questions about the investigation. Yeah, so as I was listening to, to the last episode, you made several comments about Detective Royster and just different leads that he didn't follow up on. You said there is even quotes in his report, I think, about, you know, the if they've been another detective that so-and-so is the suspect or something like that. My question is, during the investigative process, and even as you've investigated, you know, in your past and things, do investigators typically only have one case that they work on at a time? And isn't it part of the investigative process to, for the investigator to have to make some judgment calls regarding, you know, hey, it doesn't seem like the evidence will line up for this person. That seems like it might be a waste of time to follow that lead. So I just, I can't follow that lead right now kind of thing. Or it seems a little bit unreasonable to ask investigators, hey, you need to follow every single lead, even if it seems whimsical, until you find the true suspect. Yeah, so part of the issue is, uh, and John, there's a lot of background noise, so I'm actually going to turn you down. So if you're talking to me and I can't hear you for a second. Is that better? Much, much better. Uh, okay, so part of the problem is that you know, when, we, when we're looking at an investigation like this, we're, we're putting these detectives under a microscope. And it's actually a really good question you have there because Dallas County compared to Smith County are two very different animals. So, for example, in the Edward Eight's case, Smith County had six homicides that year for the whole year. Right. Even though those detectives are working other cases, that's going to be a big focus and it's going to take a lot of resources. They're all going to get dumped into that one investigation. 
you compare that to Kehoe's murder in Dallas, there's murders happening every day in Dallas. And I, I don't have the stat right in front of me, but I, I read it. Like, 91 was one of the worst years for murders in Dallas. There was something like 500 mm-hmm. murders in the city of Dallas that year. Wow. So to answer your question, no, I mean, I don't know for a fact which cases Royster was working on, but I can guarantee you that he had several murders that were on his docket that he was working on at one time. So, you know, when we're looking at how he acted on this case, it is only fair to point out that he probably was working on several other probably potentially murder cases at the same time. Now, with that being said, yes, you have to always, when you're doing an investigation, you have to, especially if you have a lot of these investigations going at once, you do have to take in all the evidence and decide what's worth chasing down, what lead is worth pursuing, and what is not worth your time. Now, that sounds terrible to say because all of us, you know, everyone listening right now is thinking, well, you know, it's a murder. Every lead's important. Everything needs to be chased down, which is true. But the problem is it's just not always possible. It's not actually possible. Now, in Royster's case in Kiao's murder, I think that in my personal opinion, there were some things that he ignored that I just can't wrap my brain around why. The keys, especially, you know, when Kenneth calls and says, hey, the the keys got returned into my mailbox not even going out to collect that evidence or to even look at it, even if you don't have time to run it for prints or DNA or anything right then, at least to get it and collect it. I cannot fathom why that didn't happen. Right. And my my question is, I'm not necessarily trying to defend him. I was just thinking that there's got to be something more in relation to somebody he didn't follow up with or something. And I was like, maybe there's a reason for that. And I tend to want to give people the benefit of the doubt anyway, but there were things that were like, okay, that was a huge ball that was dropped like the keys thing. So anyway, that was the root of my question just was there's got to be some level of discernment on the investigator, especially in a place like Dallas, where I'm sure he's doing a lot of other cases at the same time. Right, exactly. And at this point, we're so early in the investigation as well that it's hard to really get in the weeds and know why. You know, for example, when he talked to Robert Moffat, the guy who was mm-hmm. a minister, we can read the report and think, how could you rule him out without verifying this stuff? But then again, too, we weren't there. You know, he's sitting there across from this guy talking to him. There may be a lot more to why he went ahead and decided that he wasn't a suspect than meets the eyes right now. So we we've got to keep digging and figure out exactly what was going on there. And what we're doing is going to be a lot more so in this investigation into trying to follow up on those leads that maybe weren't followed up on, as opposed to the Smith County case where we had to spend a lot of our time trying to investigate the investigators because we you know, found evidence of planted evidence and things like that. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, John, for calling in. Glad to hear from you. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again as, as the case moves on. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Love the work y'all are doing. Thanks, John. Have a great day. Okay, I'm on the air now with William from Houston. How you doing today, William? Pretty good, sir. It's uh, wonderful weather out here. Uh, like I was just telling Mike, it's hard to believe that winter's come and gone. I think it's been like a 70, 80 degree winter out here in Texas this year. So, But I guess you know you've been out here quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, and here I think Mother Nature got drunk this year because we had like 60s and sun all through February, and now it's supposed to snow this weekend. Oh, it's still snowing. That's so hard to believe. I'm looking at a beautiful no cloud. I don't want to hear here. it. Don't want to hear it. I, I don't mean to be short today. I, I, I am uh, trying to get back to work, and it is wonderful to get through. But I had a quick question for you. Okay. I'm sure you've been following um, all the developments with the Tara Grinstead case. And once we had the developments over there and discovering that the um, perpetrators were people that were not in the case files, 
people who had never really had a light shined on them as far as the investigation went. And looking at that with the current investigation with so much details, with some of our previous ones, it's kind of made me start to reevaluate things in another light about, you know, potential individuals who may not have been looked at based on so many details making us look at other individuals. So as, made, as it's made me look at things in another light, it kind of made me wonder if um, on y'all's side, it's kind of made y'all's look at things differently. It really has. So for those of you that don't realize, what William's talking about is the Laura Grinstadt, I think is her last name, case. And that's the case that Payne Lindsay is covering on Up and Vanished. And the recent developments that he's referring to are the fact that an arrest was actually, two arrests have been made now in that case. And as a matter of fact, Mike and I were just talking about this last night. I started listening to Up and Vanished. I kind of caught up. And then I'm as I'm listening, and, and he seems like he's narrowing down on somebody. And then there's an arrest. And then you listen and find out, Oh, well, that guy, it had nothing to do with anything Payne was doing, that it was it was some completely other guy that was completely off the radar that got caught by the GBI. But at the same time, it really has affected in, you know, we're, we're constantly learning as we go. And I think Payne is, too. So I still feel that what Payne Lindsay was doing with Up and Vanished played a role in the killer being caught or at least arrested in that case. And the reason being is he brought public awareness. So none of us know exactly what happened, but it wouldn't surprise me a bit to find out that because of all the buzz about this case that was created by Payne, that someone finally came forward with the information that solved the case. Now, that person didn't come forward to Payne. They went to the GBI. But at the end of the day, what, what Payne's doing and what we're doing here with Truth and Justice is to try to solve the case, right? You know, we, we, we're kind of a two-pronged approach here because we're trying to find justice for, in our case in this, Jesse Eldridge, but also justice for the victim and Kiao and her family to find out who actually killed her. So the end result was an arrest was made. I believe the information coming in is that her remains were found, so her family finally has some closure and knows what happened to her, as tragic as that is. And that's part of the reason why, I don't know if you've noticed on you know these first two episodes of season three, they were really pushing for people just to get involved, talk about it, spread the word, because I think that's going to have a big part in getting traction in this case, because someone out there knows something. And they may not bring that tip to me. They might bring it to the Dallas Police Department. But that's okay because that's still going to solve the case for us. It definitely seems like with this way of investigation, it helps to prevent tunnel vision and um, closed-mindedness. And even if the answer isn't within the things that we find, it at least provides an opportunity for new ideas to come into play, which you know only leads us to more perspectives and more possibilities for answers. That's exactly right. In, in involving so many thousands of people from around the world, somebody, you know, someone listening today in Germany that never would have known about this case and never would have had anything to do with it may listen to it and hear something and think about it in a way that nobody has ever thought before and have the outlet through the show to be able to share that. It, it may open up a whole new angle in the investigation. But the key is to not put those blinders on and to continue as we go along to just keep looking at everything with an open mind. Wonderful. Well, I still got a million questions for you pertaining to the case, but I'm going to save those for next week. I'm sure there's a lot more details from uh, the things we discussed this weekend that are going to be uh, covered this week because uh, it was a very full episode. <laughs> but other than that, um, I really appreciate your time, sir. I've got a gentleman to get to work. So other than that, I wish you a good day and thanks for your time. Have a great day, William. It's great to hear from you. All right. I'm baffled now. Uh, my screen says that I have a call here from the amazing Brian from Washington, D.C. Are you the amazing Brian? 
I am indeed. How are you doing, Bob? Uh, amazing. <laughs> Good. So am I. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> How are you doing? I already said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Mike says you have some questions about the, the Z28. Yes, I was listening, and, you know, Z28 isn't exactly a high-selling car. There's probably not a ton of them. And five people in a Z28 just seems a little unrealistic and unlikely. Was there any more investigations on that car? Because it's kind of a car that sticks out like a sore thumb. There was a little bit more into it that we're going to get into here, I believe next week it's on the the docket, but to be honest, not a whole lot. But one thing that I was thinking was, and I think I had my screen here that you had mentioned this kind of the same thing, that a Z28, as far as I know, is a two-door car. So it's not exactly the quickest getaway car for five people to get inside of, which I, I did find a little odd. Yeah, I can't see four people riding around in one, even though it can fit four. It's just unusual. But then to stuff another person in there who's probably fighting or whatever, that story just seemed a little odd. I just recently got some new information that I'm still vetting and will be coming out here very soon because I had gotten to a point, to be honest, where I thought, you know, as credible as the information seems, meaning that the kid, Jesse James Swindell, had told his mother that day that this happened. His aunt had the same story that he had, and they were, they maintained the story all the way up until Jesse testified at trial. It, it seems like they were credible, but then the way it kind of went down just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I just recently got some new information that makes me think that that lead may be more credible than we think. And unfortunately, oh. you're going to have to wait a little bit until I finish vetting it. Hey, I, it gets me through my Monday commute here in the D.C. area, so looking forward to it. Oh, I've driven in D.C. I don't I don't envy you at all. Yeah, it's a far cry from the good old days of living in Michigan. Right. All right. Well, amazing, Brian. Thanks so much for your call and your question. Oh, no problem. Keep up the good work. Yep. Have a great day. All right. I'm on the air now with John from Dallas, Texas. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. How are you doing? Really, really good. So Mike says you have some Robert Moffat questions. Yeah, Robert Moffat. I mean, among other people in the last episode, there were so many leads that just weren't followed up on for, for the detective to totally give up. And Robert Moffat, when he found his, his jogging suit and it didn't, he thought he didn't have blood, I mean, that's just his perspective of it not having blood. One, it's a dark suit, so he should have had it tested for blood. And two, like you said, it wouldn't necessarily have to have blood. Wouldn't a detective have made that same conclusion and keep looking? Yeah, and I mentioned this on a previous call that, you know, we don't know exactly what went on in that conversation. But there were several things, you know, the fact that they didn't test it for blood, that there's no verification that that's actually the outfit that he was wearing. But at the, at the same time, one thing that I was able to track down, uh, a listener helped me find this information, and I don't have her name right off the top of my head, but Robert Moffat, as it seems, was actually a pastor. Not, not that that means you know, a pastor can't commit a crime, but it's just one thing that he told the detectives. He's actually the lead pastor, the head pastor at a church now down in that same area. So that part at least was true. But yeah, I don't, I just, I can't imagine, especially that early in the investigation, why you don't look into things a little further. Because the fact that he talks to himself could be explained by the fact that he was practicing his sermons. But then there was also indication in the report that the person that called said that he's verbally abusive to women who are walking. Exactly, yeah. And that never seemed to be followed up on. I mean, I'm sure he talked to him about it, but I don't know why, I guess, those leads were followed up on. But uh, we do now. Well, and the officer said he he seemed strange, and that was one-on-one with him, not, you know, listening to him talking about sermons. Right, and that officer didn't know about the calls that had come in about him. 
Remember, you know, when you, when you go through the investigative notes, there was a note that someone had said that there was this strange man that had been walking, that they appeared to be mentally unstable. And independently of mm-hmm. that, one of the other officers runs into this guy and says, hey, this guy's strange. He's walking around about the same time in the morning. Maybe we should check him out, stops him and talks to him. And he also thought he sounded strange. But mm-hmm. And then as far as the blood goes, it was indicated, and I don't remember, I've read so many documents, or there was a, one of the uh, homicide reviews or the um, some trial testimony, but there we know there wasn't much blood because it was stated somewhere that I read that the blanket that was put over Kiao's body after her body was found didn't have much blood on it. And that was something that was laying over mm-hmm. the top of her for a long period of time. So there, there, there clearly wasn't a whole lot of blood. So I guess I don't have an answer for you as to why it didn't occur to Royster that the killer's clothes may not have any blood on them. Interesting. Now, are you going to get into, in, I'm, I'm assuming one of the future episodes, the pick back up of the case by the next person who actually got Jesse involved? Yes, that will be in this Sunday's episode. Uh, that's This whole okay, episode cool. is about Jesse and his whole story and then what led to his arrest and conviction. Okay, perfect. All right, John. Well, thanks for calling in. It was great to hear from you, bud. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for calls today. And as always, I want to thank everyone who took the time to call in. And don't forget that moving forward, starting with next week, if you don't have time or don't want to call in to be live on the show, you can call our voicemail number, which is the same as the call-in number, 269-224-2833, any time between when the episode drops on Sunday mornings until 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesdays. And now, moving forward to Sunday's episode, this Sunday, just two days from now, you're finally going to meet Jesse Eldridge and hear the insane story about how he ended up serving life in prison for a murder that he had nothing to do with. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show is created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating our logo art for the Friday follow-ups. And thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt. And again, as a quick reminder, our new website address is TruthAndJusticePod.com to check out all the case documents. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at TruthAndJusticePod.com. You can send in new cases you want us to look at to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Oh, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing down on today was... Oh, that... Ugh.
Oh, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing on today was le- was leftover smoky pork Start burgers. That over. Oh, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing on today. Ugh. Oh, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing down on today was leftover <laughs> smoky pork burgers. Dude, this is not easy. All right. Well, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing down on today was leftover. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> pork burger. <laughs> Smoky pork burgers. All right. It's just stupid. Smoky pork burgers. All right. Well, that delicious lunch you saw me mowing down on today was leftover smoky pork burgers with roasted vegetables and piquillo pepper sauce. 